Barry Sherry here. Thanks for tuning in to Pink Noise, a radio show dedicated to amplifying the voices of those who have mined and shined their inner gold. I'm recording on board a floating home that I share with my partner in Seattle, Washington. I would like to acknowledge that we are on the unceded ancestral lands of the Duwamish people, past and present. Joining me on the show today is my friend Max Riggs. And for the context of this program, I'll reveal that he is an energetically aware person. That means that he picks up on frequencies many of us don't. He admits that it didn't always seem like a gift until he learned how to use these powers for good. Most sensitives have to be trained in such arts. Now he's an empowerment coach who works with other individuals to better understand and make sense of all the stuff they pick up in the world around them. The reason I asked him to join me on the show today was because of a story he shared last time we were catching up. It caught my attention and I noticed my whole body coming alive. I was deeply engaged and curious to know more. Surprisingly, this conversation was about death. This isn't the first time I've interviewed a spiritual practitioner and traversed the end-of-life topic. I'm remembering episode 21 with Heather Fantine called Post-Traumatic Growth, where she shared grief stories and particularly the opportunities that unexpectedly sprang from that well of sorrow. And later in episode 31 with Carrie Pizzullo, she's the feminist who refers to herself as a witch. And she had a profound experience after the passing of her father that was a gateway to revealing more of her magic. What I dig about this trend is that I can see how much there is to learn about taking a closer look at why we've been conditioned to fear death and ask the hard questions about whether or not that actually serves us. I'd love to know what your takeaways are following the conversation. I hope you'll leave me a comment. Thanks for joining me on Pink Noise, Max. Oh, I'm so glad to be here, Sherry. We were catching up the other day and you you provided some surprising information about an experience that you had recently in how you show up as a dynamic change coach and someone who has this access to an energy field that like more than anyone else I've ever met. And you were sharing with me about an end of life story. And I wonder if you can take me back to that. Yeah. So this was something that was actually really a big surprise to me. Um, I received a Facebook message that uh, one of my friends um, potentially was, this was going to be her last day on earth, that she is potentially going to die overnight. Um, And it was a shock to me because I knew she had a health condition, but I didn't realize that it was, you know, it was, it was her time. And after I got over that little shock, so one of the parts that I do in my energetic work is I can tap in um, and ask a question of somebody who, in this case, was a thousand miles away and unconscious. And I started tapping in to see, is there anything I can do to help her um, actually first um, recover from this experience? I mean, when I tapped in, I got no, that it was her time and it was her time to pass on the transition to what comes after. And then it was, how can I help her, you know, in this transition? And as I started asking questions, I realized that somebody who is this very energetically aware person too, had all these blocks and limits that were actually holding her here on the planet longer. You know, one of the big ones was um, being concerned that her family was going to be okay. And so I just started tapping in and like, okay, you know, um, asking questions and is your family going to be okay if you go and releasing those 
those feelings because it's a very, you know, because of course she's very concerned about her family. And as I went through this experience, I started seeing many of these other beliefs that were locking her here, that were basically preventing her from having a easy transition. Now, and I know that like this can bring up a lot of stuff for people that are listening is, you know, what is somebody's time? And can doing this, is it a contribution or should people be here longer? You know, was I actually doing something wrong? And I was looking at all these things too. And one of the big ones that comes up is that in society, we're so used to um, fighting death at all costs. You know, really the, what society says, the only way that you should surrender to death is if you've completely exhausted all your emotions, your support, and you're really suffering, suffering basically inconsolably um, before you allow death to happen. And as I was working in this process, I started to have this piece that came up. One of the parts around that, which is really wild, um, is after helping her with this um, transition, I felt a lot more peace in myself. And what I got was that all of us have this concern and this angst and this really fear around death, but we never talk about it. And the only time death really comes up that we think about it is when someone we really care about, you know, we've lost them and we're grieving. So we can't really even look at what our beliefs are about death. And the part that was like pretty amazing for me is not only was it this really big honor to be able to share with her, you know, her last moments on earth, um, it was realizing that when we release this fear of death, there's this ease. I mean, I felt lighter and more at peace being myself um, since this experience. And that was something I never would have thought. But what I was really getting was that when we have this in, innate fear of death and we're basically told we need to fear death, that creates this underlying stress that we don't even know is there until it's gone. And that's the big part that I was um, getting from all this. So like basically, yeah, since those, since the last two weeks, um, I've been feeling more peaceful being at myself and I still want to live. You know, that's one of the things that comes up too, is like, if we remove fear of death, then will I start taking these insane risks or will I just choose to leave this planet? Because one of the things in like the new age spiritual community, they talk about how you know, the afterlife is a, such a better place and how it's suffering here being on the world. And I've been getting something different that, you know, the transition place, um, what we transition to, it's not like better than here. It's just different. You know, it's kind of like we live here in Seattle. It's kind of like moving to New York. There are certain things that are much better there and there's certain things that aren't. And so I'm, you know, even having this peace around death, I'm not looking forward to dying anytime soon. I'm looking to, to live here even more. Now, I was talking a lot. So what's coming up for you when I'm sharing that? Yeah, thanks, Max. First of all, I think it's amazing that, that the people in your life know you so well that they can reach out and say, hey, our dear friend, you know, her time has come and that you can show up and offer this gift. And what I, what I heard you say is that you were able to sense her resistance to transitioning and that you were able to inquire as to the reason. And you shared that she worried about her family and what she was leaving behind, would they be okay? And I, I wanted to reflect that back because I thought that was really amazing that even as this friend knew that she was having her last moments here, she cared more about who she was leaving behind than her own end. And, and I find that remarkable. The other thing that impacted me was you offered this collective statement that we're told to fear death. 
and wanted to unpack that a little bit. What I've discovered um, in doing my empowerment work and kind of like trying to feel like or figure out why we don't feel like we fit in in the world and why do certain things that shouldn't make us feel uncomfortable feel we make we feel uncomfortable. And what I've really gotten is there's a lot of stuff that's embedded in our culture, in our society. And this has come back from thousands of years. Um, so no one actually really told me I needed to fear death, or at least I don't remember it. But some of the things like I talk about the energetic awarenesses we have, um, we pick up the energies that other people say around us. So like, as I'm tapping into now, there probably were times when my parents, you know, yelled at me not to run into the street and behind it was, oh my gosh, you know, Max could die. And we pick that stuff up, even if things that were not said. And basically in our society, um, that's what we're kind of like, if you look around about what people say about death, what people think about it, it's built into society. And once again, I don't have like specific concrete examples, um, but I just, I feel that. We also have this big fear of judgment. You know, we've been told through um, the Christian religion and religions that talk about karma is that there's going to be this universal judgment of you when you die. Wow. And that brings up a lot of stuff for everybody, because even if you're living the best life ever, there are mistakes you made in your life that if someone was going to look back over your entire life, they could totally point out and go, ooh, you're a bad person because you did this. And the thing is, it's not true. We all make mistakes and we all learn from those and we try to become a better and better person. But if you, there's a chance that someone's going to judge you for something that you potentially did decades ago, and they're going to make a judgment about like your internal salvation or your eternal damnation, well, that's going to make you nervous. <laughs> Especially when there's so much priority in spiritual language around mindfulness and the gift of being present. And so in the gift of being present and in focusing on what's happening with my mind, body, and spirit right now. And the research done on how much time we spend revisiting the past and beating ourselves up for ways in which we've been before and all of the baggage from past trauma that comes with us and guides our behavior today and worrying about the future. I mean, that can be 90% of someone's existence without enjoying right now. Yeah. And so in bringing this back to the lessons we learn about death and judgment being a big part of it, I hear you. Like I, that resonates for me. There are a lot of things that we were taught, potentially with the best intentions, um, that don't actually uh, give us what we want. So one of the ones, like uh, the whole part about like death and, and thinking that we have to be afraid of death. And if we're not afraid of death, we are going to do things that are crazy and um, risk averse. And actually I found the opposite that for me, after releasing my fear of death, um, I'm less likely to do these uh, risky behaviors um, mainly because I feel so much more calm and so much more at peace. And one of the good, re the things I'll just mention about like how I discovered that if, if somebody is constantly telling you um, to fear death, it's kind of like when you're a little kid and your mom's yelling at you that the stove is hot, it's dangerous. Now we all have done that. We've also touched the stove and realized, yeah, it's hot. We need to be careful around it and we get it. But if every time you went to cook on the stove, someone was yelling at you, you have to be careful. If you touch it, you're going to burn yourself. You'd be stressed. You wouldn't be able to relax cooking. And does that mean that you're, uh, that you're no longer, that you're no longer going to avoid touching the hot stove? No, you're totally not going to do that. And that's what I found about removing the fear of death actually does. It doesn't make you more likely to, to want to die. It actually allows you to have that peace because we remove that stress that you didn't know you had. We remove that person behind you yelling at you that you have to avoid this at all costs. Mm. What I love about what I'm hearing you say is that in this experience of being there for your friend, you recognized an opportunity to let go of some of your own fears of death 
And in doing so, you've embraced life even more. Yeah. When I first started doing this, I was doing it just as a service to help her because she's a friend. And, and as I was doing it, I was realizing that she was having the same kind of beliefs and stuff that we all have, the ones I have as well. So when I was doing this for her, I was also looking at how this can be so helpful for so many of us. Because like I was mentioning before is death is a taboo subject. You know, I was um, looking at how to explain this and, you know, it is, it's like, you could think like, oh, there's something wrong with being at peace with death. You know, and it feel it even feels weird for me, for me to say that. And I worry about people, um, you know, thinking that, you know, I'm, I'm promoting it because I'm not. And I understand, you know, one of the things that concerns me about talking about this is people that are thinking about committing suicide, you know, um, and I want to say that I'm totally against that. I think that um, the only reason to end life or to, is it when it is your time, when your body isn't going to be able to continue to go. I think that mental um, anguish, while really tough, and I totally understand when people are in this tough place, because I've been there. You know, when I was younger, I had thoughts of suicide. And I think that now we have so many tools. So people who are struggling and really thinking about that can access. We have lots of great mental health professionals. Um, and then I do my own energetic change work that can really help that um, as well. And so it's not about um, speeding time for, for us that really have a lot of life left to live. This is only that last bit, because like for my friend, um, she was in the hospital just for a very short time, just a few days and was able to transition. Now, for me, that was a gift because without that help, she might've languished for weeks or even months in you know, a comatose or semi-conscious state. And that's not good for anybody. What tools did you use to put her at ease and to help her release her grip on living in this present time? We all have access to do things, change things with some energy. And for people who don't know this, it's kind of like um, the closest example I have is like when you give somebody a hug, somebody that you really care and love about, it's not just this physical embrace, it touches you on this deep level. So I'm tapping into an energy that's similar to that. And what I'm doing is it's a combination of logically asking a question um, and then potentially shifting, um, uh, giving somebody a different answer. So for example, if somebody doesn't even realize that the reason, one of the reasons they're staying around here is because they're so worried that their family is gonna be okay, bringing one, just bringing that question to the surface can be enough to go, oh, well, of course they're going to be okay. And then if not, we do a little bit of work about like, oh, well, are they okay now? Will they be okay in the future? And one of the parts that's challenging about, you know, especially is your family or someone you really care about going to be okay, is they're going to have challenges. You know, we can't protect our people we care about and love, love from everything that's going to happen in the world. You know, but we can trust that with our love and support, they are going to be okay. And we do have to be able to let people go and have their own life experience. You know, even if we kind of know that they shouldn't be doing something, we have to trust and love them enough to allow them to make their own choices. Mm. That reminds me of the struggle of watching friends who are parents, you know, letting their kids grow up letting their kids grow up to make their own choices, to make their own mistakes, knowing that it might not always be pretty and they kind of want to control the outcome for their child. But the more you give them independence to fall on their face, for example, that's like a way better life lesson than just doing what mom said. Yeah, totally. And it's super hard. And it's hard for even for me in my work, because um, I help people do what they're choosing to do. And sometimes I see things even that like, Ooh, I'm not sure this is going to work out the way that you would like, 
but people have to make their own choices. And one of the things that's also really interesting is sometimes what we think is a step backwards actually is a step forwards because that's the place that we had to learn that little trick lesson or give us the push to go in the right direction. So it's interesting. So sometimes even the step in the wrong direction is actually the right step to take. But that's just about the lens of the, of the doer. Correct. Is that, is that, is because right? it is. It's like, I've looked at that. I've looked at this because, you know, I've looked at choices I've made in my life and I look at choices clients have made and you could even look at like, you know, there's really no wrong choice you can make, you know? So like what I say about that, like you're stepping, you make a step in the wrong direction, but it's actually the right direction. Was it ever wrong in the first place? No, but it feels like it. And sometimes like the thing is, is we can think about this as like somebody who, um, is has a major in college you know they so decided this is their major and then they take that step and then they realize it's completely wrong and they really need to have a completely different major now so was choosing that major wrong no because if they didn't cho choose it they might have always thought or always th th thought like yeah i should have cho chosen that and regretted it their entire life you know or the same thing is sometimes the best thing for someone to do is drop out of college and get you know, a job working in a fast food restaurant because then they realize they don't want to do that and it gives them the impetus to do something else. Yeah. The example from my life that comes up when I hear about making a choice and I think about conversations with my ex-husband in the years since we divorced and how sometimes we find ourselves saying, well, maybe we should have ended it a couple of years before we did. And I think, you know, yes and, right? Like, yes and. It's, it's what I learned about myself in those final years that becomes the most potent lesson for what I bring into who I am now, who I want to be now in relationship. Like that's some of the richest learning and so I, I've been really trying hard to change that narrative around regret because without those experiences, I just wouldn't be who I am now. And I, and I think that's what I'm getting from your story about even if you perceive it to be a, a wrong decision, there is no wrong decision. There is only the decision that you made in that moment, which was the best decision you could have made with the information that you had at the time. And yeah, sure. Years later, you can say, hmm, that didn't take me necessarily where I wanted it to go, but it allowed you to be who you are today. Exactly. And that's one of the things that I've discovered too, is for any important life decision, there is never enough information at the time to make a choice that's 100% certain. And the part that I found about regret is regret is one of the heaviest burdens that we carry around. And that burden makes your life harder. It ages you more rapidly. And so it's to look at that. And especially like for me, um, this is something I, I, I think I was like 15 when I looked at this, that I was regretting so much stuff in my life. And I realized I could not live my life this way. And the thing that I see now is just acknowledging that yeah, you had this information, but you never had 100% of the information. And even in retrospect, that was what we were kind of getting at about even a wrong decision could be right. Even in retrospect, you don't know how that decision would have turned out. You can have an idea, but you can't really have that. And that regret, it's just like I said, it's this heavy weight that you're carrying around. And so what if you did make the best decision you could at the time and then just like release that? It feels so much better in the body. Mm -hmm. And that's what I'm finding with this mantra that I've been working with for the past year, which is tell the best story. What's the version where it feels good to be me and, and the person I'm with or in relationship with or in context with is also tell the best story about them too. Yeah, that's really good because, and the other part is also your story is going to change. And that's the thing. What's the most empowering story for you in the moment 
actually can be a disempowering or limiting story in the future. And so the part is, is to allow your story to change when your story is no longer supporting your forward growth. You know, for example, about uh, moving through a super challenging uh, time or situation, um, it could be focusing on that your story is you're a survivor and you can move through this. And if you keep that going for years and decades later, that actually can lock you back into that experience and not being able to move through it. So maybe you change it to something else. Um, so, so that's the part that's also interesting. What empowers you in this moment might be limiting you in the future. And it's not to like think like, oh, I have to be really careful about the story I'm choosing, but it's to allow that story to evolve when it no longer excites you or motivates you to do that next thing. How can you adjust your story to be more reflective of who you are or who you want to be? That sounds juicy, like following the thread of aliveness. Mm -hmm. Is there anything more that you want to say about this piece around things that live in the shadow like death? You mentioned yeah. it's a taboo subject. And because we don't talk about it, it has power. It has dark power. Yeah, that's so true. Um, and once again, it's like, because we haven't looked at this stuff, we don't know what comes up. The part is, is we all have all these beliefs that we don't even know about that can potentially lock us in when it is our time to go. So since that time, I've been going through and looking at all the beliefs I have and all the beliefs that people generally have, because I see that um, without looking at these, then they do stick you. Like, so for example, like for me, releasing all these limiting beliefs I've had around death gives me this peace now so I can enjoy the rest of my life. And when it is time for me, you know, that last little bit of time on the planet, um, when I know I'm not going to be able to recover from that illness or that last little bit, um, when it is time for me to go, I can go with a piece and I can go easily because I see it's not just, you know, the person who is transitioning right now. It's for all of us that have those death fears. And then it's for people who are actually dealing with the loss of a loved one or potential loss of a loved one right now, you know, because it is, it's like things that are, we bring up, that brings up the whole thing. Like if it's death is really close to you in the moment, there's sorrow, there's sadness, there is regret and it tangles things. And what we're trying to do is just make it easier for people to kind of like have that transition that we kind of all would, we kind of all think about that when it does come time, we want it to be easy, peaceful, you know, die in our sleep in the bed at home. Um, and what if we can make that easier for a lot of other people? I remember hearing Michael Hebb's story. He's the founder of Death Over Dinner, having conversations around death. And I heard him speak at a seminar many, many, many years ago now. And what got him going on this path was an unexpected conversation he had while riding a train. And he was on the train with these doctors. And what they said is that 80% of people say they want to die at home in their bed, just like what you just said. And the truth is, is that only 20% do. There was this massive disparity between the desire and the reality. And, and that set about like a whole new kind of career trajectory for this man in talking about why don't we get more of what we want at the end of our life. And it's been fascinating to follow more of his talks and works and his book. Um, and I've been trying to bring that home to my family opening up these conversations and trying to make them less taboo. Is that, is that something that you advocate for as a way to clear the energy is to have advanced conversations about how you want to die? It's a great conversation to have, I think, um, with some lead up into it. Um, because that you're right. Those are the kind of conversations that's probably if we are going to have a conversation with, about somebody's uh, end of life, it really is well, what do you want your funeral? Do you want to be 
buried, cremated, or we now have this option for recycling. Um, and it's like, how can you talk about the things that um, they want to make sure that, you know, you know about them before they pass? You know, what information do or what unfinished things do they feel that they have? That might be one of the ones is so it asks those kind of questions. You know, uh, what is it that you would like to do before you go? Um, what do you feel is unfinished that you're not going to be able to do? Um, how do you want me to live when you're when you're gone? What things do you want me to know? Um, and talking about like that, as opposed to really what, what do you want your, you know, after you die, what do you want your body to be? That's great. I, I love that you brought that up. Asking loved ones about unfinished business. Is there anything I can support you clearing up or achieving or moving through? That's a whole nother level, isn't it? You've got the yeah. logistics about, you mentioned what happens to your body and what you might want your funeral to look like. I consider those to be more logistics, but then you've got the, the emotional labor, the emotional burden. And it is one of those things too, is because, um, you know, it's asking your loved ones, what do they feel is about death? You know, do they feel that there's going to be you know, an afterlife, a transition? Do they just dissipate? And that can also be um, helpful to discuss that because maybe you're able to give them some um, of your insight that helps them with that. Because for somebody who is really afraid of not existing and they believe that they're not going to exist at all after death, um, that's going to really temp that's going to really make them fear that. And then the same thing about somebody who, you know, believes in the heaven and hell, but that they are going to get judged beforehand. That could be really big. And it can also be, you know, one of the things that, that came up is like, you know, who do you need to apologize for? Who would you like forgiveness for before you go? And while that, once again, that's not required and there's sometimes it's not even possible. If it is possible, could you do that before? You know, could you make amends with somebody, um, even if it was completely their fault, because you would like to be able to see them again? And once again, I am, I don't believe that uh, forgiveness is required, that you have to make amends. Sometimes it's actually worse to do that. Um, it's to really, but every situation is different. I think that's the main thing. Um, and that's one of the other parts that I teach in my courses is a lot of times people have been told especially from new age spirituality, that you have to forgive your abuser or people who have wronged you before you can move on. And that traps so many people. While forgiveness can be helpful and make things easier, that's not required. Because I've seen some people who say they forgive somebody, but they really don't. And if you've been told that you have to forgive somebody before you move on and you really wanna move through this, you can get trapped in that cycle when you actually can move on without forgiveness. And I imagine in situations like the ones you just named, like forgiveness could just be out of reach. It could just be like not even on the table based on the way that they were treated. Totally. And that's the thing is like, I work with clients and some of the things that I hear happen to them, I would never forgive. You know, I hate the person that did that to them. Um, and the part is, is like, like I said, is like every situation is different. Forgiveness is not required. Now, if you can, that's amazing and more power to you. And I so appreciate that you can do that. But if you can't, you totally can move through any experience challenge. It's basically let you do have to let go some of much of the hate that's trapping you there. You can still be really angry and, and move through it. It's just removing that, that extra hate and that can kind of trap people. What else do you want people to know about the power of energetic clearing and preparation for, for one's end of life or even moving through grief? Yeah, that's, that's really cool um, that you brought that up. Because um, one of the things that we've kind of been told is all you have to do is mentally think that you want to do something different. 
Um, understand that there's all these reasons why you're supposed to let something go or think that you're a capable, confident person when you don't think you are. Any thoughts or beliefs that we have are stored in three components. You know, one is what happened or what we, what you think happened. Second is what you think that experience or that thought means. And then the third is the emotional or energetic component. And this is the part that locks everything in. Um, so basically one of the big ones for so many people is thinking that they're not good enough or they're not worthy. And this can be in the face of, you know, tons of successful medals, achievements, and everyone else thinking that they're an amazing person, but they can still feel like they're not worthy and small. And why is that? They have all this logical reason. Well, there's an emotional component that often happened in a traumatic experience or something somebody said when they were really young and it impacted them. And that emotion locks in all that feelings of unworthiness. I discovered this because I did so much self-growth work most of my life, and I never could find, could kick out those last little bits of doubt, bad self-worth, thinking I wasn't good enough until I found out about energetic work. And that is we do the logical part, we put all that stuff in place, and then we do that energetic change, which I said is kind of like bringing that hug, which is basically just a, an energy that's able to unlock that stuck emotion and allow what's actually true to come out. And that's the part that um, if you haven't experienced it, it's pretty amazing about how we can change things that previously weren't able to be changed. And it, with any kind of thing that comes up, there's always an emotional component to it for any belief you have. You know, you can think like, oh, well, this is 100% logical. Well, there's still emotion behind it. And that makes things that, even if they're completely false, difficult to change. And one of the other parts around that is even things that are true can have this, this emotion that's not helpful. So one of the examples I have is like, we think of like some positive things. Like for me, I love chocolate cake. So uh, if some, if there's like some really good chocolate cake on the table, I might even have two pieces, but if somebody came running up to me, especially someone I didn't know, shoved this cake in my face, yelled at me, this is the best cake ever. You have to eat it. I'd be like, get the beep away from me. There's no way I'm touching that cake. So basically that was a truth, a true thing. This person was saying something true. This cake is really amazing. You're going to like it but that force messes with it. And that's true for even, so even when you have like a, a logical belief and a belief that's true, there's often this emotion that gets attached to it that pushes it and it keeps it from being the full expression that it actually could be. Mm. So I'm with you on, I like chocolate cake. There's chocolate cake on the table and I want some. And if it's really good, I might have two pieces. And I even felt my body mirror your words around the resistance when someone comes and shoves the chocolate cake in my face, As when it's someone I don't know. <laughs> if a friend shoved a piece of chocolate cake mm -hmm. in my face, I'd probably, you know, lick their fingers. But if it was someone I didn't know, I might take that as a, an act of aggression. And you don't even know if I like chocolate cake. So, so yeah, like. I'm, I'm going to create this distance. And I felt that resistance in my body when you shared the story. I think I'm still missing the connection point. Can you? Okay. Well, let's, let's bring that to the fear of death. Okay. So what, what thing that's often shared with people um, after somebody has died is they're in a better place, you know? Um, and the part is, is I totally believe that they're in a good place and that's true. But most of the people that are saying that they actually think it's a lie. So they don't believe that they really are in a better place. They actually think it's a worse place, but they're just saying that to make you feel better. And you, as the energetic person you are, you tap into, you know that they're lying, but they're lying about something that's actually true. So the part is, is removing that energetic um, resistance, which is there, um, allows you to actually see the truth. Because if somebody like, like in the chocolate cake example, it was really good, but how it was presented was not in the way that worked. And so once again, so even if it's true, which, you know, they're in a, 
once again, better place is relative, but a little bit better place, let's say. Um, but if someone who's telling you that doesn't believe it, you're not going to believe it. And you're going to pick up that there's something wrong. There's something unsaid that's going on in what they said. Um, so many of the things that also that we're told um, in times of grieving, um, people are trying to help, but they don't know what to say. You know, people are in such emotional and physical pain um, that people want to help, but they don't know. So they, they fall back into what they've been told or what they saw on TV or what they think is going to be helpful. And this is something which is actually the continuation of this um, easing um, fears around death is looking at how to release deep grief. Because so many of the things that we're told about grief are from people who say things that they think will help, but they often hurt even more. You know, so the whole thing about this person's in a better place, does that really help you when you're grieving the loss of your spouse that you expected to have for another 30 years? And the plain truth of it is, is you have no freaking idea, really. What I'm seeing here, Max, is a problem with almost cliche colloquialisms language. Like we use words and language that have been passed down that we're familiar with, that we've heard before because we think it might be appropriate in the moment, but it, but it really doesn't help. I'm, I'm, I'm getting that through this conversation to my takeaway from this moment with you is to really watch my language. It totally is. And I, that's another thing I talk about is words are basically magic spells that create your and create other people's reality. But we've been living in this throwaway disposable society and people just throw words around like they don't mean anything. And that's one of the parts that's really tough. And especially like, yeah, these sayings that we have, you know, they potentially can really uh, mess with people, especially around grief. You know, one of the ones that comes up is that, oh, the reason you're grieving so much is because you loved him so much. Now, yes, that's probably, there's some truth to it, but we get this part about grief that it gets tied into love. That if you really love somebody, of course you have to have this, uh, this terrible, inconsolable grief. So that's one of those ones, kind of like that chocolate cake example, where um, it's true, you have this really deep grief, but society is telling you it's supposed to be awful and it's supposed to push you down even further. And that can really hurt people. And at the same time, our modern society does this, pushes us on the other side of grief. So basically, even if you've lost the most important person in your life, if you're having deep grief for over a couple of weeks and definitely over a month, society says something's wrong with you and you need mental help to, to get over it which that is so messed up. So they're pushing you on both sides. They're pushing you that you have to have this, this terrible grief. And then also you're supposed to get, just get over it. And that really messes with people's authentic expression of their grief. And everybody's grief comes out in a completely unique way. And that's what society doesn't understand. You know, there's some people that, you know, years, decades later, they still have this deep inconsolable grief. And there's nothing wrong with however your grief gets expressed, but I found that when we remove the manipulation and these built-in beliefs that society has been forcing on us, no matter how, how deep or light your grief is, you can move through it quick, more quickly. Now, <clears throat> this can be taken the wrong way because you know I have clients who have lost children you know, years later that it's still hurting them so much and people don't understand them. And they go, I can't talk to anybody about this. And I go, I totally get it. So I'm not saying that, you know, you need to move through your grief faster. It's just that when we remove that manipulation, it allows that grief, however, it was going to come out to be more authentic <clears throat> and actually take less time. So for example, if someone's grief was going to take decades, if we can shift that to three or four years, that's amazing. But that's still something that most people don't understand, that somebody could still be grieving so deeply after years, but it's totally can because everyone's unique. And one of the other parts that's really tough for um, us 
um, as energetically aware people and emotional people is we've basically been told that if you can't explain your emotion logically, you're not supposed to have it. Now, this messes with us so much. It's like, you know, why you feel uncomfortable, um, you know, hugging one of your uncles. You can't explain why, you just have it. But because you can't explain it, that means that feeling isn't right and you're not supposed to have it. And this is true with so much of the stuff of society. Um, because I found that sometimes when things happen, like especially somebody maybe doesn't say something kind to you, but it's not like really nice and you get upset. And then you look back on it and go, oh, I kind of overreacted. Why did I do that? Well, oftentimes it was a perfectly logical and emotional reaction to what wasn't said, how that person was saying it with, with hate and anger towards you, even though the words on the surface weren't so much. And that makes some um, energetically aware people think like, oh, I'm way too sensitive when actually it was just a representation of what actually was going on. But because we can't explain it logically, um, we're not supposed to have those feelings. You just described a perfect example of why I'm so turned on by practicing authentic relating. Because the foundation of the practice is to make the unconscious conscious and then make the implicit explicit. So in the example you just provided, there was an intuition by the receiver that what was being said didn't feel good, even though the words themselves weren't um, you know, demonstratively negative, it, there was something about the energy that they carried from the person that felt, no, thank you. <laughs> I don't want that. And uh, yeah, it's what's not said. There's so much power in what's not said. Mm -hmm. And it's not acknowledged. And once, once again, it's like, we've also um, turned, turned down or turned off the awareness that we have. Like one of the things that often clients will come to me and they go, I don't have awareness. Um, you know, I got into this abusive relationship and I'm not sure why. And what happens is almost always is the people did have an awareness in the very beginning. But then logically things happened afterwards that made them doubt their awareness. So for example, in an abusive situation, pretty much every woman I've, I've worked with knew the very first minute they met the guy that something was off and they didn't want anything to do about him. But then he did all this stuff that was amazing. You know, he did all the right things. Uh, he was kind, um, charming. Um, and then they forget that awareness. And they suppress that. And it's the same thing with many, um, many of us as ch children. We were growing up and we had all this awareness that didn't make sense and was really uncomfortable. And because people told us it didn't exist, we were just too sensitive. We go, okay, that doesn't exist. I'll just turn that off. And while it's turned off or the volume is turned off, it still impacts us. We still know it. And so, so many of us are now trying to rediscover allow our awarenesses to come back. So for me now, there'll be sometimes I'll have just, just a weird interaction or a weird energy. I have no idea what it is, but I never deny it anymore. I just go, oh, something weird's going on. Okay, I'm just aware of that. So that gives me information for the future. And the same thing about people um, that we're interacting with, because you can get like a really bad um, feeling for somebody and they, they continue to do everything right. So for example, a coworker, you know, so we're not talking about someone you're going to date, but a coworker, you get this funky feeling that they might have some hidden anger or something inside there. So you interact with them, how they're, how they're interacting with the world, which might be this kind person on the outside, but you don't deny that you have this funky feeling about them. And that way, when something happens in the future, when they blow up at you for no reason or whatever, you can kind of go, oh yeah, I kind of knew that was there. And so it's to, it's to continually make yourself right or not, that sounds wrong, but to continually just acknowledge that you do feel something. And, and it's not to necessarily go, what does that mean? Because that's one of the parts that's so confusing for us energetically where people is sometimes you have no idea what it really means. 
And so you kind of try to figure it out. And the part is, if you can't figure it out, cool. And if you can't, just store that away for information for the future. What I'm really getting out of that, Max, is how important it is to validate each other. When we are in having an interaction with another human being and they're sharing a feeling with us, that the most helpful thing you can do is to acknowledge that you see this feeling that they're having and to not make it right or wrong or judge it or put your filter on it or even use it as a gateway to tell your own story about a time when you felt that way. It's just to simply be with and validate what it is they're going through so that they can feel seen and that way maybe integrate that it's okay to have this feeling. I think we want that more than we know how to express. We totally do because we've basically been <laughs> disacknowledged of all the feelings that we have and the expressions we have that so many people don't understand. And it's not that they're, most of these people aren't bad. They just don't understand it. And that's because that's another thing is a lot of times when I'm working with clients, they'll be, they'll say something and I go, oh, that's so common for energetically aware people like you. And they'll be like, what? I thought I was the only person that felt this way because there's something about um, how being a sensitive or kind, caring person in the world, it's been so devalued. It's it's kind of the world has been designed so that you think you're alone. You think that you're the only person that has these negative thoughts or the only person that feels this way, but that's not true. It's just basically been designed to separate you because when you feel bad about yourself, you can't step into your power and change the world. And basically kind, caring people have the ability to change the world so much more than they think. And so society has kind of been designed to suppress them so they don't change the world. Because people who don't think good about themselves are easy prey for advertising and consumerism and all of that, right? Because then you're, you, you can be duped into thinking that if you bought this thing or you need something because you're not enough. <sighs> A lot of capitalistic society would crumble if more people believed they were okay just as they are. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because that's the thing that like all advertising works on is, you know, oh, you have this, this limitation and we can fix it for you. And I actually look at it that it's also that when you think something's wrong with you, you're using your own energy, your own magic to suppress yourself. Ugh. Because it is, it's like, like my example is, um, it's kind of like you, you're walking out in the rain and then you go, oh, it's my fault. I'm getting wet. I created the rain, you know, instead of, oh, it's raining out here. Um, I need to get an umbrella, put on a raincoat or go inside. So there's a big difference because one is something's wrong with you because you're getting wet. And the other one is, oh, you're getting wet. You can change it. Yeah, you're quite a change agent. I get that Thank from you. a lot of your messages. Do you think that the, that we're all born sensitive or empathic? Um, this is a good. This is a good question. Um, I think somewhere um, at least fifty percent of people are, and we have this ability to change things. And the part is, is I think that we as sensitive and energetically aware people kind of need to step up. Um, first, it's because it makes your life so much better. And then you can make the lives of people around you, just your, the small people that you really care about better. And then together we can start changing the entire world because the rest of the world that maybe doesn't have the energetic awareness you do, they kind of follow along with what the general society is doing. And right now, the general society basically says that energetic awareness, sensitive, kind, caring people are devalued. But if we change that so that we become more valued, we value ourselves more, then the rest of the world will come along in creating this world that we all want to live in. Yes, please. Before COVID, I attended the Compassionate Leadership Summit at the University of Washington, and I was very inspired by what I was hearing there. 
And I look forward to events like that um, existing again as we start to gather, as we start to become a more vaccinated population of people. As we're nearing the end of our hour, Max, is there anything that I haven't asked you about that, that you haven't shared yet that you'd like my listeners to know? Well, I think we've shared quite, quite a bit. Um, and one of the parts I really want everyone to get is that they're stronger and have more strengths and capacities than they think they do. Because what I've found is, like we talked about before, there's so much more stuff going on beneath the surface. Um, and th that's just basically an energetic weight or an energetic resistance. So just like if you were pedaling straight up a super steep hill on a bike and you thought, oh, it's supposed to be easy, um, it, you're actually doing a lot more work just moving through life than you think you are. And so that doesn't mean you're weak. It actually means you're a lot stronger than you are because you're carrying more weight. You're pushing through more stuff. And so all of my work is basically designed to help people understand that that they're stronger than they think they are. And to see, because when you're able to see what's going on, we're able to see those energetic emotions and resistance and those societal beliefs that are just kind of embedded in society. When you can see that those are actually pushing you down, that's what's resisting you. It makes it so much easier to move through. Thank you for sharing. You're Thank very you. welcome. If your listeners were interested in what we talked about today, uh, about um, releasing fear around death so you can enjoy life more, or even if they've had like things about some deep set of grief that they haven't been able to release, they can find my, my classes online at maxriggs.com slash classes. And I'll also put uh, the link below. And the main thing is just for people just to understand that they, being who they are, can be difficult to be in the world. And sometimes we look at this as being a weakness, you know, that there's something wrong with you, that life is difficult, but actually it's a lot more about those energetic resistances that are embedded in society. And the part is, is once again, it's not like this overarching thing that you can't move through. It's just like the rain. When you notice it's raining, you can put up an umbrella. When you notice that there's this energetic resistance and these beliefs that are limiting you, you can just change those beliefs so you can more easily move through them. Sounds like some great lessons for people to have more peace and ease and joy in their life. Yeah. Yeah. Who doesn't want that? I could sure use more too. I choose that every time. Yay. I decided that it's my responsibility to turn myself on. Woo. Love it. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for being with me here. It's been a great pleasure talking to you. It's been great talking with you too, Sherry. Awesome. So there you have it, folks. Kind, caring, sensitive people are here to change the world. So let's make it more possible by tapping into the resistance and deciding to set it down. The parallel he made at 50 minutes in that described how our society has been designed for us to believe we're alone in our negative thoughts. Because feeling bad about ourselves keeps us small. And insignificant people don't do bold things. Ugh. <laughs> I mean, it's like, duh. And yet, here we are. Wanting to live in a world that's different than the world we live in. And if I reel back the memory clock to earlier in the episode, that's when I'm really grateful for my notes. <laughs> I've got questions to ask my loved ones about their unfinished business. No reason to delay. The sooner I address that myself, the sooner I can be like Max and have more peace and ease while I'm still living. Amen to that. Thanks for listening. Next week, a conversation with one of my teachers, Jason Diggs, co-founder of Art International and author of Conflict Equals Energy, the transformative practice of authentic relating. Until then, keep mining and shining that gold within. <laughs>